Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode 113 of The Shortlist. My name is Johnny Campbell. I'm your host for the podcast and live broadcast. And this is, as I said, episode 113. We've got a great guest joining us in just a few moments to talk about a topic that I'm really passionate about myself, as I know our guest is. And that's about how do you create career pathways for moments of transition? Those of you listening live, by the way, as we do broadcast this live on LinkedIn and YouTube every Wednesday, uh, you're more than welcome to join us. We love to have your comments, your thoughts, your interjections, your questions for our guests. Do so using the chat and we'll do our best to respond to them. And any links we reference for anyone, uh, we'll put them out live, of course, those of you listening live, but the most of you do listen on your podcast. Uh, we'll put them in the show notes. So let's get back to creating career pathways and those moments of transition. So finding the right talent, as all of us know on this show, is one of the toughest things an organization must do right now. And there's a huge need to expand the scope of hiring beyond traditional methods and mindsets. There's this skills shortage. There isn't enough talent to go around. We have record low unemployment rates in the likes of the US, where I think we're at a near 50-year low. And you've got to tap into talent pools that are perhaps being underutilized. So to do this, barriers have got to be broken down to create access to employment. But what does it actually look like on scale? And how can companies become more innovative in their approach to create talent pools from areas that perhaps, as I said, are underutilized? So this week, we're going to be chatting with, I'm so delighted to welcome onto the show, I've been wanting to get him on the show for quite some time, Nick Maley. And Nick is the VP of Talent Acquisition at Equinix. Nick has seen huge success in creating career pathways for individuals who may have taken a pause from work, maybe they're transitioning from a different industry, maybe they're entering the workforce for the first time. We're going to be talking about how this changes the kind of standard playbook for hiring and maybe the role of training and driving that approach and the importance of looking for softer core skills when interviewing, which is not what a lot of folks are used to. So we'll take Nick off my off uh, mute. Nick, you're very welcome. It's great to have you. First of all, where are you joining us from? Tell us, our audience a bit about yourself. Who are Equinix? Why are you here today? Why do you think I'm so excited to have you here as well? <laughs> and then we'll get into the into the topic. Hey, Johnny, thank you so much for the invitation to participate. I was uh, delighted um, to, to chat about something I'm, I'm really passionate about and in innovating within uh, talent acquisition industry. And so I'm, uh, I'm uh, talking to you from Redwood City, so heart of Silicon Valley. And uh, of course, from, from Equinix, and we are a leader in co-location data centers uh, globally. And it's a you know, global growth, um, six, $7 billion uh, company, uh, which has seen pretty significant growth. Um, I think it's now something like 77 straight quarters, 78 quarters of, of straight growth. Um, and so we've uh, done really well, continue to grow. Um, globally as there's more demand for digital services around the world as, as folks want to continue to connect and, and use um, all kinds of online systems and solutions, our business will then uh, in turn continue to grow and develop. And that that really um, uh, means that we're going to be hiring and continuing to. So thank you. Look, thank you for the invitation. Delighted to chat uh, with you about this and he asked me uh, briefly what's going on. I'm wearing a Landmark hat. Uh, Landmark College is uh, is a college I dropped my son off last week, and uh, it's the number one college for uh, individuals that are uh, for neurodiversity, and so individuals that might be on the spectrum or 
have a uh, learning challenge, uh, ADHD or dyslexia and other things. And so um, I think that sort of uh, plays nicely into what we'll be talking about, which is creating pathways for individuals and thinking differently about talent. Many folks graduating from Landmark, they learn differently and, and they operate differently in the workforce. And um, it's probably in part why this uh, is so near and dear to me. I, my own son is is on the spectrum and will find himself looking for opportunities in the near future. I'm not sure I told you before, my wife uh, is a primary school teacher and has taught kids on the spectrum for 20 years now and uh, very passionate about it. And again, an area close to my heart and, and to lots of the team here at Social Thomas. Nick, give us a bit of context and maybe paint a picture as to the type of skills that a business like Equinix hires for, kind of type of market you're hiring in, and maybe what kind of resources in terms of team, colleagues, support you have to do that. Just to give us an idea of, you know, the scale of this, maybe even the volume of hiring that you do. Yeah, look, I mean, um, there's, um, we hire um, all areas. They're very technical areas where you have to have real depth and understanding uh, networking solutions. And so we will hire uh, very strong um I would say network engineers, DevOps engineers, as, as you go up market, um, full stack software development. So there's a very um, significant core, uh, heavy, I would just say engineering, deep technology, but that's not all that we hire. Uh, we're also looking at technicians. We've been looking at, I'd characterize it as unskilled labor and we will train and develop people. Uh, and grow them to be technicians uh, and be able to work, say, within the data center. And then, like a, uh, I think any major company, we we hire you know across the board in areas like uh, I'll say GNA, legal, finance, HR, um, marketing, um, sales, um, and then of course in all of those areas, there's analyst enablement roles and things along those lines. And so uh, it does really run the gambit it's um um we do we do joke around about how how broad our uh job architecture is i think we have like 1400 some uh, different uh different jobs which is pretty pretty significant um for for a company our size i think even that that variety our number of roles is 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 challenging uh, but i had a conversation with a leader last week who was sharing an insight um in his business as to what the hiring managers thought was a volume role. They hired a very typical role that was like 60% of the hiring. Um, um, therefore, the, the spec was the same. And the business called it a volume hiring role. And mm -hmm. he said he was talking to a senior hiring manager, a C-level person in the business. And he asked the, the hiring manager to explain, what do you, what do you mean by volume? He's like, well, it's kind of the same job over and over again. It's easy for you guys in, in TA. And he's saying, yeah, but like we hire in every city across the US and they were hiring all over Europe. He goes, do you know that that role was the same spec? When I go to hire in this town versus this other city, I have to approach completely different. So while it might look like it's the same job, when I go into all these different locations, how I need to find that talent is radically different town by town, city by city, state by state, country by country. So added to the role complexity, which you know, you're not saying you have volume recs, you have, that complexity with so many geographies. So talk to me about which is the hardest, 1,400 different role profiles are, you know, 
maybe a hundred plus locations that you got to hire for cultures and backgrounds. Oh yeah. It's the hundred. And I find it's the locations. It's the, um, <clears throat> it, I talk about recruiting motions and first what you want to define is how you, uh, recruit, um, and pipeline talent, whether it be new to career or executive and uh, defining that, that's sort of controllable, which is, you know, what are the channels you're gonna leverage to, to attract talent? How are you going to, um, you know, interview and assess that talent and bring it on board? And so while I talk about 1400, you can kind of bucket them into 22 areas um, and then define skills and then assess for them. But what then happens is that you get into the uniqueness of actually trying to uh, attract talent in highly competitive uh, areas. And there's always um, uniqueness around the channels you really have to um, exploit in order to win talent. And it's very different whether or not you're, you know, if you're competing for talent in Germany versus Japan versus uh, Singapore or Bangalore or in the Valley. And so, yeah, they're very different dynamics channels and different things you have to kind of put in play and um it's dynamic where where it will shift quite a bit and um there are times where you know your your digital approach whether it be just marketing uh may be successful and it's defining channels but other times um you uh you need strategic sourcing to engage um and and at times you just need your leaders to engage right they're they're no longer responding um, to to recruiters, but they they want to hear from actual leaders, and so each each market has its um, you know unique challenges, is what I'd say, and they and they shift. And a quick shout out to some of our live audience. We got Rob, Sandy, Eric all saying hello in the chat. It's great to have you here, and anyone else listening live, again, love to hear your thoughts and comments. Nick, this ain't your first rodeo. You know, you in VP of TA into it, and plenty of other businesses, and I'm sure like. Like many of our listeners who've been in this industry for a while, we recognize that there is a traditional approach to hiring, which is you get a rec or a spec from a hiring manager, you talk to her about what she needs, and your default is to go find somebody who does that role in a similar way, maybe slightly junior spec or you know whatever it might be, just working for somebody else. And so therefore, you're really kind of going, hey, this other company employs them doing this same role or the role just before that, so they're probably good enough. I'll assess for the skills that match and I'll move the person in. That's kind of what most hiring is to treat to TA. But what we're talking about when you, you tap into various um, unexploited you know, talent pools where there may not be that match, they haven't got that exact job title working for your competitor set in the same location. Talk to me about what's different in the hiring process. Where does, where does it begin to, to verge from your traditional way of hiring? Um, I find that it's almost sort of a, an inverse approach in, in driving change. If you're really uh, um, looking at a new channel, like pathways, and um, you're, you're right, which is you, traditionally you're looking at, uh, you're screening people out focused on skills, capabilities, and experience. And um, when you start to look at... Um, different pathways, you're actually screening in and you're kind of narrowing in on what are capabilities that are key? Um, what are those transferable skills uh, that you can bring in depending on the, on the nature of, of the role? 
and uh, what are things that you can then teach and develop? And um, it, it's more of a, it, you're, you're moving away from I'm hiring someone or getting uh, hiring someone that's sort of plug and play. And it's a lot more around how am I going to develop and grow? And so uh, it does um, it does put more onus on the businesses that you're partnering with. Um, and uh, look, it, it obviously opens up sort of the candidate pool, but more onus on leaders to really be thoughtful about how you're onboarding and developing and growing people. And I think it's uh, it's important um, when you're thinking about going down this road that it can't just be an acquisition play. It has to be uh, talent management play, if you will. It has to be far more balanced and thoughtful about bringing in talent, developing talent so that they uh, really can flourish. And so it's uh, I, I characterize it as sort of an inverse sort of uh, approach. How do you enable a TA professional to hire that way? You know, how do you scale it so that she has an understanding of what's trainable, what's not trainable, how long it, it, it takes to train somebody up, how long it takes that organization to train somebody up, um, what are the kind of, as you said, the, the, the kind of um, uh, the, the softer skills, if you like, that are, are, are required here. And then what are the, the influencing skills to then have the conversations to hiring yeah. managers and challenge their assumptions about how they should hire? Like, like, how do you scale that? How do you make sure that your TA team know how to do that consistently across the business, across all those role types? I always like to liken it to uh, building a product or service and, and sort of you create sort of this MVP, you, you test it, you get feedback um, and, and you iterate on it and you grow over time. I will, I will have to, and just to be frank, we, I have experienced quite a bit of misses in, in both companies and that I've last couple of companies I've worked in and developing this and, um, and it's a, there is a lot of trial and error and you have to, um, you have to understand that going in. Um, it's an environment in which um, you should anticipate that you're, there's going to be some failures and things aren't going to work out. And so I think the first, first thing to know uh, at the onset is that this is not going to be a flip the switch and, and just scale. It's, um, and uh, I go to like, you have to find the right if you will, product market fit, and then grow it. And so um, it, it really is true. So the first thing um, we did was sort of looked at what would be ideal landing places. And um, for people that are either making a career transition or were unskilled and, and looking at our people have taken a pause. So there's, there was, um, the, you know, we were like, where do we, where are we hiring new to career? And how are we growing and developing them? Because they're getting a lot of support. And that became sort of some of the natural areas that we would lean into. Um, and so these areas where we'd start folks, uh, start folks off looking at what sort of solutions that we provided as an HR organization to onboard and, and solutions that the businesses provided to make them more productive very quickly. And so those are the sort of the first things we did was looked at uh, some of those areas uh, as landing spots um, for folks where we could start them and we knew we could really make an investment in growing and developing them. But I, look, I, I want to share that when I think about pathways, there's a whole bunch of different channels that we use. There are channels that did not um, work out. Um, there were partners that didn't work out. And um, when I started, 
um, this initiative, getting buy-in from senior leaders was relatively easy. When you're sort of sort of saying, look at look at the marketplace, uh, look how inflated salaries have become. Can we look more broadly at talent? Uh, we first looked at um, adjacent industries where there's um, a career transition, so people in different industries but had uh, transferable skills. And in in the uh, you know the the response from senior leaders was relatively um, receptive. It was sort of getting into the line managers because their work and their jobs changed pretty drastically, um, and and their investment and the time investment they need to make. Uh, when we first started off, we just as you kicked off the um, call, you know, our teams weren't interviewing the right way for these roles. And we we had a lot of misses and we got a lot of feedback from our partners. We were looking at people the way we always had. And um, I'm, um, <laughs> I guess it, maybe embarrassed, but it's a good learning. Like we were interviewing the way we always interviewed. We had to actually shift uh, both the spec we had to shift the way we interviewed and um, and how we hired. And um, that took um, engagement from senior leaders to look at sort of what those uh, critical needs were for those roles that we thought were transferable, meeting with and spending time with line leaders and um, giving them, if you will, sort of permission to um, hire people based on some potential in different areas versus experience. We had to retrain um, people who are interviewing to think differently about talent. Um, well, that was the other thing. And, um, you know, initially we missed. Uh, we'd, we'd bring folks in, we interviewed them, and, and we weren't getting hires and we didn't understand why. We did a deeper dive and we found out, okay, it's, it's the way we're interviewing. So we need to shift that. And then we brought in senior leaders. They were a part of sort of the debrief meetings we had on interviews and sort of they helped coach uh, their line leaders on thinking differently about talent and thinking about, um, you know, the capabilities that we could develop and how we would develop them. And um, that took that candidly, it took some time. But then once we uh, were able to do that um, and then define sort of better define what the new interview process was, what the new capabilities were, we could then begin to scale. And that's what I mean, like trying to find the product fit. It's like, how do you actually do this successfully? Um, we started very small. I mean, we had maybe 10 hires in the first year and we invested a lot of money in partnerships to make this happen. So the ROI was not there. And there was, uh, you know, there were sort of raised eyebrows internally. You have to justify why you're doing this. Um, today, we'll be hiring um, in uh, north of 700 some odd folks. They're coming through career transition. So we've been able to scale it. But it's really, first, uh, it's defining where. It's defining what are the capabilities. We had to re-engineer the interview process uh, for folks. And um, we also had to find the right kinds of partners in areas. So there are areas where we could go in, um, and engage folks that were returning to work that had taken a pause. Hmm. Other areas, but they had, perhaps they had an engineering background and they had um, program management background. And, um, and those, candidly, those were actually easier to onboard and engage. Um, and so that was, that was a channel. And there were specific areas where we knew we'd be successful in onboarding them. And we defined that area, um, and then we expanded. 
um, what we're doing there. Then we did the same thing, say, for technicians and operations, looked at what specific roles we thought would be uh, successful, evaluated the skills and did the same thing. But we went through a couple partners before we really landed on a partner that really would work for us. And a lot of that tends to be uh, some of our military um, programs as well as um, programs for military spouses. And we're doing that globally. And so we're working with programs like SkillBridge and identifying, um, you know, uh, different folks for all kinds of roles. Um, we had um, needs to ensure that we're delivering on um, some of our government requirements around um, disabilities. We partnered with um, Athletes Career Transition. They um, transitioned professional athletes that are sort of retiring into new roles. And we work with them almost exclusively on uh, Paralympians and looking at, um, we've identified again, landing spots for them. We've uh, found some wonderful areas in sales and sales enablement and, and in our care organizations where they uh, can have uh, sig significant careers. And, and so when I thought about, when you think about pathways, better to back up, I, we created sort of a portfolio of um, different partnerships and different areas from which we were going uh, to source. We identified sort of landing spots. We then identified how we would train and develop them for each of those areas. I guess what I'm hearing is that's where the scale comes from. Rather than just be, hey, we have a general approach that's screening in versus screening out, and let's just see what happens. Um, there, you've built up learning in how to, for example, best assess that cohort. And then there's probably, although it's not deterministically, but there's probably a pathway that is most obvious for those folks into there. So therefore we have a process. Of course, somebody could take a different pathway, but this scales because you don't actually have to uh, fundamentally change absolutely everything. And you're not coming up with blank states every time you're coming up with, okay, I am, I have interviewed and assessed and presented someone like this before many people like this before. And as, as it became more successful to your point after the first year, it probably became easier as you had wins as that scaled up and you could tell the story of, actually we've hired this person another year in the business and doing really well, or, or did that play a part in it, Nick? It did. Um, I'll, I'll have to um, uh, say, give credit to uh, one of the senior leaders on our team. What she ensured that we did for each person we hired uh, is uh, she got quotes from both um, the hiring leader as well as the person we hired, really talking about how important it was um, for the candidate in particular, uh, making this transition and the impact. And what you find for folks that have been making this transition is that um, it is it has a significant, significant life experience and powerful, powerful stories in providing, you know, new opportunities, new pathways um, for folks. Uh, we leverage those and we would share that uh, those stories with community. And when I say community, it's internal community. So we'd share with other managers the experience of the manager and hiring the individual. We'd share with that community internally, um, you know, the candidate's experience and the individual's experience. Um, and that really created um, over time, um, I think, increased awareness understanding and empathy 
uh, for folks, but they also were seeing as you were like the success of these individuals and the commitment these folks have within the company that they're working for that has provided new opportunity development uh, and, um, and sort of the flexibility as well for them to make that transition uh, into, into a new area. And um, it's become um, now a critical path for the business to meet their deliverables uh, by the end of the year. So this comes from a, you know, uh, something that we um, felt like we wanted to open up because of the necessity in the market to this becomes the uh, sort of the critical path for talent in some of our key business areas going forward. And it's a, you know, it's a part of our, or core to, I should say, not a part core to our strategy in a number of areas. One of the things I really love about this story of pathways and success, Nick, is this didn't it doesn't sound like this started out as a DEI initiative, as it could do, and that would be a noble reason to do it, to kind of say let's increase the diversity of our organization, try more inclusivity. This is a strategic way to solve a talent talent acquisition gap and uh, a tight labor market. It's it's it happens to have amazing positive consequences, I imagine. For diversity and more inclusivity, have you or your colleagues measure that? Do you look at that other knock-on effect to go? You know, is the business just much more inclusive, more diverse, more mm-hmm. open-minded because of the fact that you probably have a much more diverse workforce um, and diverse in more ways than other workforces than most? Yeah, I um, I think that's a uh, it's a great question. Um, it is our most diverse hiring channel. Um, that wasn't the initial driver. Um, it has become um, sort of, as you said, the knock-on effect. That was, and um, and it, it and it is leading to um, a higher engagement from leaders as they're seeing uh, the success and uh, in in this initiative and hiring channel. Um, but now now there's understanding that uh, not only are you hiring uh, great talent, um, uh, but um, it's also more diverse, is super compelling. Um, and uh, we're seeing a lot more engagement. And um, now it's sort of building on itself, um, which is fantastic to see. So here's something that we had sort of um, really uh, worked hard at sort of, you know, getting in place. And um, after it being successful, now we're just seeing it, um, seeing it grow on it on its own. And it's super um, uh, effective in terms of diversifying um, the, uh, you know, employee population here, which has been, which has been fantastic. And, um, and is great. And we talk a lot about um, how we can um, better scale um, this program uh, more broadly than it is today and ensure that we're, in fact, I'll just share it's uh, two times more diverse. So the propensity to hire uh, historically underrepresented minorities or, or women is 2x through, um, through our Pathways channel than any other channel. And, right. and so just from a if you think about channel performance and meeting any of these DIO, uh, DEI sort of objectives that different businesses have, um, this is a surefire way to, to make that happen. 
uh, not that this was your intention, but you did mention the economics that say year one didn't make sense and there were some raised eyebrows, understandably. How are the economics looking today? Like if you're looking at this purely from a CFO's office and she's saying, oh, you know, is it worth all the investments in opening up these channels? Can we not just hire more recruiters or outsource it to some headhunters or RPOs? Uh, at a high level, talk to me about the economics of this channel now that it's more up and running. Yeah, far more, far more efficient than a traditional talent. It's, it's half of what a traditional acquisition, uh, cost of acquisition would be. Um, uh, it took a lot of investment to get there. Um, but um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Like we work with um, um, uh, DOD SkillBridge program. Um, DOD SkillBridge program covers the cost for the first six months for an individual doing an, an apprenticeship or an internship. And so, um, you know, in terms of depending on your, you know, your different business needs, that basically means that person can come in, train and develop um, for free for you for six months. And by the time they've essentially ramped up, you um, and, and are, I would say, super productive and effective in their role, you're then transitioning them in and just, and so um, depending on the different kinds of programs you're looking at or want to create, they can be significantly um, uh, less expensive than a traditional acquisition model. Yeah. So but that's not, that's not where you start. Like you yep. have to know that there's um, it's like anything that you're starting in a new business or a new channel, significant upfront, upfront investment. And I'll be frank, we had partnerships that we invested in that were not successful. We just um, we we just couldn't make it work. Um, and that's the part of where you have to be willing to fail and um, and see it through. I think that we believed uh, and we say that talent is everywhere. Opportunity is not. We're going to see this through. We did uh, and and ultimately um, found sort of the right partners. Uh, we then uh, defined how best to sort of source in different areas internally. Um, and that, and then these areas just became far more efficient for us than your traditional, traditional model. So you said so far, twice as diverse, half the cost. You alluded to loyalty earlier on. Is there a measurable improvement in attrition as well um, and longevity? Or is it too early to understand that that's, that's another benefit? Um, well, I would say my, um, past life would tell you, um, you're going to have lower attrition, um, in, in doing this in previous companies, but I've only been at Equinix a short time, about three years. So I'd say it's probably too, um, too soon to say, um, but, um, uh, the company should anticipate, um, lower attrition as well. I mean, you're going to have higher, higher retention rates, um, and, and part of that is based on the commitment the company makes and the investment in the individuals. And um, there's a higher level of commitment that individuals in loyalty, if you will, that uh, individuals will place in the company that has taken a chance in, in them and invested in developing them. Last week um, at Social Talent, we launched a new course on hiring neurodiverse talent with our partner, Theo Smith. And in that, Theo, explained a statistic, um, which I've looked into, and it's unfortunately true, that when it comes to diversity, for example, only about 4% of publicly quoted companies actually 
make any effort or claim any effort to focus on neurodiverse talent. And when we see as a business, Nick, organizations who come to us to understand about our diversity, equity, and inclusion solution, and many of them say, please tell me what you do beyond race and gender. Because race and gender, was unbelievably important, aren't the only areas of neurodiversity. You've mentioned our, our diversity and, and different channels. You've mentioned former athletes. You've mentioned, mentioned the military. You've mentioned those who are neurodiverse. Um, others, perhaps, we haven't mentioned. I'm interested to know where else you see talent. I know you said it's everywhere, but sometimes people don't have the imagination to really get into the specifics. You know, we look at, for example, those who were formerly incarcerated. We look at refugees. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we look at uh, individuals from um, different socioeconomic backgrounds who don't have the same opportunity. So, so where else are you seeing talent, either that it's worked so far or your team are investigating as new pathways? Yeah, well, look, I would tell you, but it's going to cost you. Um, uh, I, <laughs> I, I don't even have. <laughs> <laughs> no. The... Uh, uh, I, I think we want to expand into looking at uh, neuro, neurodiversity in particular is one, one of those channels that we really want to explore. I would just take a step back. When you look at each of the channels, we do, um, we do resource them. Um, and there is a component of ensuring um, that you have someone really dedicated to a specific area. Um, right now, we're spending a lot of time with the refugees. It's, it, that is a um, very, very challenging area, um, as you can imagine. Um, there are many folks looking for work, but their situation is very fragile and dynamic. Um, and so that's, that's an area that we're working on currently and looking to, looking to grow. Neurodiversity is a um, and looking at how best to partner in, in defining and uh, sort of what that would look like for us. And when I say that, it's the, what are the areas? Um, how, would we, how would we engage and pipeline, if you will, talent? It's defining what I call that um, recruiting motion, which is not yet defined, whereas these other areas are. Um, you know, I, finding the right fit within the company, an area where we can land individuals and they can have successful long-term careers. And so those are the, those are the two that we're going to focus on in the short term. I'm, I'm sure there are others um, uh, that we can look at, but um, um, I think, uh, you know, it's sort of, you, you, you don't want to, I, I don't, I don't recommend that you go broad and try a whole bunch of different things, but you, uh, focus on a couple, and then as you get a certain level of scale um, or product market fit, however you want to characterize it, then you move on to the next thing. So those those are the two that we're going to start working on, and we're, we're actively working on the refugee, and then neurodiversity would be the next. For those listening who hear your accent, I might anticipate this is a very west coast of the U.S. conversation about channels. I want to go back to your first comment, one of your first comments around just the complexity of locations. And can you share any insights as to some of the differences in channels and the different areas of opportunity based on geography? Have you seen any patterns or any differences really? Of course, some are the same in every market, there's opportunity, but, you know, for example- Well, they're very big, like um, <laughs> a lot of these folks aren't creating LinkedIn profiles, right? And so much of the, if you look at your traditional sort of professional recruiting team, uh, there, um, I don't know what the dependency is, but there's a certain level of dependency on leveraging things like LinkedIn or uh, Intello or whatever, you know, whatever those other uh, solutions are. And so 
um, in engaging with um, whether it be like the military or uh, engaging with like uh, professional athletes and things like that. We, we leverage um, partnerships more so uh, than not. And then we do leverage things like we'll, we'll go on Facebook and um, what is it? Zing in Germany and some other, other different kinds of um, um, platforms in order to engage more broadly uh, with individuals than, um, uh, than sort of the, traditionally what I see uh, different um, uh, organizations using. So it's probably, I, I, don't, I don't mean to use this, this phrase uh, derogatory way. It's more low tech. It's more less about running a Boolean search string on a database and more tapping into a network, having a phone call with a, an organization that's tapped into a market and then trusting their recommendations and the work that they do. Is that fair to it say? Is. It is. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and we work with a lot more different, a lot. Uh, I would just say we work with a lot more organizations, both nonprofits and and other organizations, to help us with uh, with pipelining the talent as well. So, so, so if a, a TA leader is listening to this, and she's saying, you know, I need to do what Nick's team are doing. Talk to me about the role of your peer group and the wider talent organization, because obviously this is isn't something you're claiming you do on your own. And I know it's something that you don't do just by yourself. You have a whole learning organization, different parts of the organization that have to work together. Mm -hmm. How do you get them involved? Any advice or tips you can share to other TA leaders that say you were trying to engage yeah. in this kind of strategy? Uh, I think the first thing you have to be willing to do is make trade-offs within your organization. Uh, what, what I would tell you is you're not hiring recruiters. You're probably hiring change leaders into the organization, uh, people that are patient and are going to work really closely um, and consult with uh, business leaders. And um, I think that's sort of the first thing. It's the, this is probably not um, your, your traditional approach. And, and so you have to be willing to make the trade-off. And so I'm sure there are individuals on your recruiting team that can do that, but they, it's, a, it's a different approach and they have to be willing to shift. Um, and then you as a leader need to be willing to make the trade-off and see it through. That's the, I think that's the first thing um, I would, I'd say. Um, alignment with, um, you know, your e-staff or business leaders, of course, is critical in other, in any major initiative, but this is a significant, significant change. And change management um, professionals, if you have them, would be key in um, pulling in to be a part of the process. The other thing is it can't just be an HR program or it will fail. And so pulling in, depending on the setup within your organizations, your talent management professionals, but also within the businesses, there, there are typically training and development leaders and uh, specific programs in place, pulling them in to get buy-in um, and understanding what can be delivered um, for, uh, for individuals becomes super important. And so it, it's like any other major initiative you might be rolling out in a company, uh, you need to bring in key stakeholders and uh, stakeholders that have, uh, if you will, they're gonna have stake in the game um, so talent management, L&D professionals in the business, client services like your HR business partners to understand sort of 
what's happening, how they can help in terms of capabilities and skills that you um, want to focus in on. Uh, obviously, your key business leaders. Uh, that becomes critical. And then um, communication is super important. Now, um, being able to communicate and give updates on what was successful and what wasn't successful and why is key. Um, <laughs> bringing them in um, might create more drag. So you might not move as fast, but bringing leaders in. Uh, leaders actually you know, started attending debriefs. And, and that's where we sort of determined, hey, we need to interview differently. We're going we're gonna to rework the way we interview. And so um, when I say alignment, you also want them to commit to this, uh, these leaders as well and participate in, in these things. And that's really how you sort of get it set, if you will, or harden, you know, this new process or practice in the business. Um, and I think that was, uh, that was pretty critical for us. So willingness to make the trade-off, bringing in key stakeholders, pu really pulling them in into areas they're probably not used to participating in normally. It, it's very much slow to go fast um, mm -hmm. very early on. And there are going to be times where things don't work out. And I would, that's just don't give up. It's sort of find the, either the right partner or the right area and, and or be willing to shift the way you're assessing and what capabilities you're looking at. I love how faced with the challenge of a skills crisis and lack of talent pools out there, you managed to have the cost of acquisition from a channel, double the diversity, drive better engagement and skill development in your own team, better inclusivity and probably happiness in the workforce, anecdotally reduce attrition. It just genuinely seems to be so much, so well worth the effort. But I think what you're saying is it's not going to be a quick win. This isn't a give me results in three months or six months. And it does require very strong leadership to keep pushing. And as you say, keep going on, even in the face of failure, adversity, perhaps lower turns at the start. I guess if you look at any great innovation today, you look at the sequencing of the human genome, which you can do for 100 bucks today. It used to cost millions. But yes. the variance yeah. and scale make it make it you know give you the the the, the affordability and, and the return but you're not going to get it at the start you have to push through that like i feel like i've i've been greedily asking you and, and stealing tips from you for the last 45 minutes but i'm going to be greedy for more. we are at the end of the show i can't believe we're at 45 minutes already uh, and we're at that point where i have to pause and ask you one more time if you can to leave our audience with one last tip one last piece of advice uh, whether it's advice that was given to you by a peer, somebody you work with, or just something you've gathered through your own experience that you can leave our listeners with today. Yeah, look, um, uh, talent acquisition, I think, is the most rewarding job in a company. You are creating um, careers for people that are life-changing and super impactful. Um, I would say my, my advice is courage of your conviction is really it seeing something through and really going for it have no like i just have no regrets and i i think about the pathways initiative courage of your conviction make uh, for me it was making trade-offs in the team to make this happen seeing it through and and having you know no regrets about that and so for yeah so for each of you it's the same have the courage of your conviction nick it's been a pleasure hearing the story of pathways and success i hope 
many listening or any even one person listening might take the inspiration to say, we can do this in our organization and follow your lead. I think it's been a pleasure. And thanks so much for taking the time out. I know your schedule is insane, but hopefully it's been well worth it. Um, and we're going to get the return and hear about how somebody else did the Nick, Nick Mailey pathway uh, journey in the future and offers talent and opportunities to, 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 to much more under-service markets and folks out there. Wonderful. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Really appreciate it, Johnny. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. And thank you for listening and joining us here again this week uh, for hopefully what's been a really informative episode. I know I've really enjoyed the conversation. I think it's a fantastic story and highly replicable in your business, in your TA team. If you are like most companies out there struggling to understand where you're going to find all this talent from, here's a way to do it that will lower your cost, will double your diversity in the long run. But it's not for the faint-hearted, only for the brave. So thanks for listening. We're going to be back next week with another fantastic show. Again, focused on the future. And we have the wonderful Christoph Niebel, who you may remember from one of our first shows many, many years ago. And he's the president of Pontoon Solutions, really looking at scale um, uh, enablement around recruiting and supporting services for businesses all over the world. And Christoph is going to be sharing his vision of leading a workforce of the future. And Christoph, if you haven't heard him already, is really a disruptor, not afraid to shake things up, real visionary, in my opinion, on the way he thinks about talent and the future, not afraid to take chances. You'll hear his vision and what he's doing at Pontoon and how he's working with Pontoon's clients on next week's show. That's going to be broadcast live on the 7th of September. You'll catch that at 4 p.m. UK Irish time. It's 11 a.m. on the East Coast, and it's 9 a.m. 8 a.m. on the West Coast of the U.S. Or if you can't join us live, please do check the podcast, which will drop in your in your podcast app come Wednesday evening, Thursday morning. Until then, take care.